everyone. Hope you're all having a good day so far. Welcome to episode 11 of my second season. Today is Wednesday, March 17th, 2021. My name is Sanal Patel, and this is the Paint the Medical Picture podcast series. Wait, isn't today St. Patrick's Day? Well, green is my favorite color, and I hope the day brings everyone good luck in all their endeavors. Let's keep staying lucky with our health, too, by doing our part. Keep masking up, washing up, and staying physically distant. Now, in just one week, so many of you have already reached out to me and asked, what on earth is going on with all these audits? Well, look no more. I have even more details in this episode. This episode highlights the insights of my return special guest, Jenna Godleski. I also deliver more of my trusty tips in part two of my SMRC or Supplemental Medical Review Contractor audits that are in full swing. And I also share inspirational words from our Nobel Prize winning American author, William Faulkner. If you've checked me out on LinkedIn, you know I'm all about compliance and protecting our physicians and valued healthcare professionals when it comes to the business of medicine. I hope this week with me brings you enough to take back to your organizations, to want to dive in deeper, to use my tips and best practices to ensure success. I hope this podcast will help you boost the quality of documentation capture and improve coding accuracy as you help your providers paint a medical picture. If you like what you're hearing, go ahead and hit that subscribe button now so you don't miss an episode. Please write in a review and five-star rating on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to my podcast. It really helps, and I'd really love your support. Now, a quick disclaimer. Before I get started on this episode, this podcast episode and next in Pruitt podcast series do not constitute legal advice, but I am fortunate to work with the sound healthcare attorneys at Nexon Pruitt. And as their consultant, I have over 10 years of experience in front office, back end, coding, and billing for multi specialty physicians, compliance, and auditing for both ENM and surgical operative reports. Again, the opinions and insights throughout are mine alone, and they in no means constitute legal advice. So let's get into a very special newsworthy that features my return guest today, special counsel at Nexon Pruitt, Jenna Godleski. Yay, it's great to have you back, Jenna. I know you and I share many of the same connections and business relationships together. And of those, you are so well-respected in this realm of healthcare as a reimbursement attorney. Thanks, Sanal, right back at you. I really appreciate the opportunity to be back here today to talk about the Medicare appeal process and how we can help providers get through that. Oh, I'm so happy. I'm so happy. Right. So that's exactly one of your biggest specialties um, is you definitely help guide our providers through the complex and, of course, in my opinion, high stakes world of appeals. Um, so I thought you could provide my listeners today with your experienced insights on the appeals process with Medicare. I know I've supported your work on, I don't know, like over 40 or so cases over the years, and I know each one is completely unique, um, topsy-turvy, each one is a doozy. So hopefully you could walk us through some of these complex steps today. 
Sure. There are five levels of appeals in the CMS um, administrative appeal process. What happens is the provider will receive a findings letter from CMS, one of the MACs, one of the Medicare administrative contractors, and it will give an overpayment amount and the provider will have a set time period in which they have to appeal. Um, otherwise their appeal rights will be lost. Um, the time Medicare is strict, strict, strict. If you miss the deadline, there is very little wiggle room. You're just out of luck. So when providers need to be aware, their office staff needs to be aware and know what these letters look like and how to spot them and get them to the right people. Oftentimes we've seen them come in and the provider staff shoves them in a drawer and the timeframes are relatively short, especially if you want to stop recruitment. That time frame is even shorter at the first two levels of appeal. So it's very important that you educate everyone in your practice to know if, if records requests have come in, audits have come in to be on high alert for these um, findings letters, these demand letters that will come. Um, the first step is the redetermination. This step is kind of a perfunctory level of appeal that has to be done uh, because it's going right back to the same MAC that denied um, the claims to begin with. So I have never <laughs> seen anything overturned at redetermination. Usually the denials get rubber stamped again to the next step, which is called reconsideration. This is actually another level of appeal. It's all done on the written record. There's no um, opportunity to speak, but at least at this step, the provider will be able to present their case to uh, what's called a quick, which is a qualified independent contractor who is um, still a Medicare contractor, but independent of the MAC. So your chances at this time um, become a little bit better because you're, you're um, before an independent body and a more independent body. And we have seen some success, at least overturning, you know, usually you're dealing with multiple, multiple claim denials and an appeal. So we have seen some success at this level with overturning certain claims. The next step is what providers long to get to because it's actually a judge that you can present your case to, you can speak, you can bring experts in to present your side of the story. The unfortunate thing about the Medicare appeals process at this stage in the game is that it is now taking providers six or seven years to get to this stage. We have clients that we've had for that long and are just now, after six or seven years, finally getting their day in court. And that is a tough long road to hoe, which we'll talk about a little later in the podcast. But that is the um, third step. And the COVID pandemic obviously has not helped the lag times at all because now all the administrative law judges and most of CMS auditors are working from home. And that has, you know, significantly um, slowed the process down. The third, I'm sorry, the fourth level of appeal is the MAC or the Medicare Appeals Council. This is a the another 
written review. It's not an actual judge, but if you lose at the ALJ level, you can go on to the Medicare Appeals Council. Um, from my experience, in my opinion, unfortunately, the Medicare Appeals Council does tend to rubber stamp Medicare decisions and overturn the ALJ a lot, um, is, which is frustrating. And CMS normally, you know, because they're not paying for attorneys, they have in-house everything, they will typically appeal to the MAC if the provider does win at uh, the, or the provider loses at the ALJ level. This level used to, by statute, you're supposed to get a decision within 180 days and decisions have been taking 800 days. We personally have a client right now who has a, a appeal pending before the Medicare Administrative Council and it has been over 800 days since we have submitted that appeal. So even though the provider is forced to follow by the timelines, CMS That's seems so to be able to do whatever they want. So and the final level of appeal is you can take your case to a federal district court after, if you're not happy after you know the Medicare Appeal Council, we're probably talking at this point <laughs> 10 years down the road, but it is an option if the provider has the resources and the will to keep fighting, that can be done and it, and it is done. So that is the five stages of the process. Um, one thing I want to note that some providers don't understand is when they get their findings letter, the actual amount that is due based on how the claims that were paid can be what's called extrapolated meaning that CMS can take a sample set and if they follow the regulations set forth by Medicare, a, for instance, $12,000 worth of claims that have been denied can all of a sudden be extrapolated over three years to $2.3 million. So these can get blown out of hand really quickly if the error rate, if CMS determines your error rate is high enough and it's not a lot of times, most of the appeals we've seen have been very high dollar amounts. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I'm listening to you and I think you heard me interject there. It's unfair um, on so many levels. It's so unfair. They wait years and years and years um, and then they don't even follow any rules. They just seem to do what they want, in my opinion. That's completely unfair. And this extrapolation thing, wow, that's- Yes, the odds are stacked greatly against the provider in the appeals process, which is why we always advocate proactive coding compliance so that providers don't find themselves in these situations. Because it, when they are, there are so many economic and legal considerations. If a provider gets a big appeal and decides not to spend the money to fight it, that can end up being disastrous because if they don't correct or figure out what, get education from CMS on what they're doing wrong and they continue to bill the same way, they're gonna continually be audited. They're gonna get hit again. They're gonna get tagged for fraud, waste and abuse. It's not gonna go away. 
um, shutting your practice down doesn't make this go away because um, a lot of providers have tried to shut down and open anew, but CMS now has recently in September, 2019, they enacted in their enrollment regulations that if you owe Medicare a significant amount of money from another practice you were at and try to open again, that can be a denial reason for not giving you a new Medicare provider number. So you can't escape it. If you get caught in the appeals process, you've got to quickly make decisions that and try to decide how to keep your practice viable while navigating the appeals process. Uh, recruitment can only be stopped for through the first two levels of appeal. Once after you've exhausted the first two levels, CMS will start recouping and interest will start to accrue immediately. And a lot of providers don't understand that. So a strategy we often use is trying to help providers set up a payment plan immediately, even if we're gonna fight it, because if you eventually win, you'll get the money back, but you're not gonna have exorbitant interest continually added on throughout the years and years that you're waiting. So there are many, many considerations, one of which is usually to win, you need a good medical necessity expert that takes the time to go through claim by claim for all the medical records and gives you, either tells you, okay, you've got a viable argument here or you don't, but gives you meat substance to actually argue um, before you're at the appeals process. Otherwise, it's general appeals don't work. You know, just submitting general arguments we find do not work. You really have to dig into what the issues are. And if the documentation does support the medical necessity, you need to figure, you need to point the reviewer to the documentation and let them see um, that it is there and, you know, bang him over the head with it. And we, we that's really the best advice I can give to a provider is you do really do need an attorney to help you navigate this process because there are also legal arguments that can be made sometimes that are very helpful. And you need a good medical necessity expert to help help you navigate the issues and help you improve don't forget the improvement part so that as you continue to operate your practice, you are going forth compliantly or more compliantly to stay off the radar in the future. Absolutely. So, you know, in my experience, I don't think I've ever, um, you know, heard of a provider who could do this appeals process completely and successfully on their own. You know, they've always had to hire, like you're suggesting, an attorney, a legal team to help them fight this through all the many crazy, you know, steps and processes um, all the way up to the ALJ level. You're absolutely right. Um, I don't think it's good if a provider tries to do this, you know, blindly on their own, as you've been stating. Right. And you need an attorney with the right experience and a medical necessity expert that is well-versed in the type of 
specialty that you are practicing in, um, hospice and home health, as we have been talking about recently, we have right. so many right. clients right now that are being hit. Um, hospice and home health is a huge target right now and was has been on the OIG work plan for a while. Yes. Um, as a provider, you have to stay current. So Nal does a great job in her your podcast, helping people understand what the OIG is looking at currently. And that's because that's where the audits go, because the OIG is directing CMS, telling them who to look at and why. And within six months to a year, that's where the audits go. Right. So, you know, we can predict and see what's coming and providers, if they can stay on top of that, um, stay educated on that. It, it's a huge, huge, huge for them to stay viable and to to avoid these audits. Right. Now, like you were um, suggesting, there's been a huge uptick in home health and hospice. Absolutely. Um, And when folks like myself, coding experts, the clinical documentation people, physician coding advisors, when those types of people are brought in uh, to help the attorneys, you know, uh, try and craft their appeals, et cetera, um, do strategies like that work in your opinion in the cases that you've been in um if they're not working why do you think this is the case why is it not successful i think a few bad actors in a, in a specialty you know a few fraudsters can really convince the government convince cms that everybody is committing fraud or a lot of people are committing fraud and that's just not the case from what we've seen our clients in these realms are great people and they're actually saving CMS a lot of money because the services being provided by in hospice and home health are keeping people out of the hospital. They're keeping people at home. They're keeping people comfortable. They're keeping people safe. And um, it's just a huge shame. I, I think there's a disconnect with between CMS and the reality of what these providers are doing for the health of our elderly. Um, And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people misunderstand and some of the ALJ judges tend to misunderstand what the criteria are to qualify for these services. And it's frustrating. It's frustrating for these providers. So um, they really have to stay on top of their documentation and make sure everything is documented so well. And, you know, everything from signatures to um, proper criteria being laid out completely every single certification period or every single eligibility period for these patients and really stay educated on any coding changes, any documentation changes that they need to educate their staff on. Absolutely. I uh, couldn't agree with you more. It's all about that clinical documentation. And I think you and I have seen success over the years when it comes to organizing that clinical documentation, right? When we receive it, it is a hodgepodge jumble of documentation that's not organized. And that's okay uh, because you and I do a good job of organizing it and then sending it over um, to the various 
reviewers, right? Um, and I think that is one of the ways that we can find success when that clinical documentation is there. Um, you know, it's right there written in black and white. It's just a matter of us basically spoon feeding that documentation correctly to the Medicare reviewer side. And that's an excellent point because many providers won't contact an attorney or a consultant for help when they receive the record request. They wait oftentimes until they're, sometimes they don't even contact people until they're already have begun the review process. So it's critical if you get a big record review request from CMS or from one of your big payers that you do get help because sometimes we've had success with audits going away just because of the way the medical record was organized and it we because we knew right how what the what the auditor was looking for and you know you put it front and center and and you organize it well and sometimes that can really help things a lot thing the biggest thing providers need to do is proactive coding compliance and we've been saying this for years you we do most (laughs) most clients most of our clients who are caught up in these millions dollar appeals would give anything to go back and have the opportunity to do things right to do things to conduct self-audits periodically to educate their staff better and, and to really have a living, breathing coding compliance plan at their practice, which, you know, really helps mitigate your audit risk. Absolutely. And, you know, the DOJ just put out, you know, relatively new um, guidance for all of us in June of 2020, right? That compliance program now has to be deemed effective that's new language. Like it can't just be sitting and constructed in a binder collecting dust on the top shelf in your office. It's supposed to be effective. Um, so yeah, it's huge. That's a really, really good note. So yeah, we definitely do endorse proactive compliance and it has to be effective. And as we talked about on our last podcast that I joined you, having the right person at your practice who understands all, and it may be more than one person to worry about HIPAA, you've got to worry about hiring and, and your employee compliance and doing the proper background checks and making sure the credentialing is done properly. And you've got, need someone, whether it's your biller or someone who stays up to date on coding changes, CMS and with your private payers. And it's really, Good compliance at a practice is really something that has to be living, breathing, done weekly, monthly, semi-annually, mm-hmm. internal mm-hmm. audits. It just doesn't ever go away. You can't ever get comfortable because things are changing all the time. That's right, Jenna. Wow. So in our conversation today, have we missed anything for my listeners um, on this crazy convoluted appeals process to Medicare? Is there anything you'd like to leave my listeners with? Just be proactive and sometimes even good proactive compliant providers are going to get caught up in the appeals process because it is unfortunately unfair. And if it happens, just make sure you get the right help and you under 
you're educated on how to, you know, effectively attack it and, and have someone that can help you implement the right strategies to keep your practice viable and survive the process. Thank you so much for your incredible insights um, and your knowledge in this space, because I know it's complicated, but um, I know all my listeners are going to appreciate your helpful tips on how to do this. So thank you so much. Thank you, as always. And now it's time for my best practice tips in trusty tip. Remember, in last week's episode, I alerted all of you to the 17 new Unified Program Integrity Contractor, the UPIC, audits that are being conducted via the Supplemental Medical Review Contractor, the SMRC, at Noridian. Their function is to conduct nationwide medical reviews of Parts A, B, and DME providers and suppliers as directed by CMS. It's the responsibility of the SMRC to review medical records and related documentation to ensure that claims are processed in accordance with CMS guidelines. I provided you with details for one out of those 17 that involves durable medical equipment, or DME, supplies in non-covered skilled nursing facilities known as SNFs. Now, since last week, they've already completed one, so there are now a total of 16. Nonetheless, let's get into my part two of SMRC audits. The second is titled 01-019, Spinal Cord Stimulator Notification of Medical Review. Now, Noridian SMRC is conducting post-payment review of claims for Medicare Part B for Spinal Cord Stimulator, or SCS, billed out on dates of service from January 1st, 2018 through December 31st of 2018. Remember, these are the time parameters. This notification includes the reasons for the review, documentation that will be requested in the additional documentation request letters, the ADRs, as well as resources that providers or suppliers may wish to consult with when they're submitting claims. Some background on the why. Why on earth is this audit happening? The OIG, under the Management Implication Report, the MIR, 12-009, titled Spinal Cord Stimulators, had noted vulnerabilities in the Medicare payment process that allowed excessive billing for implantable spinal cord stimulators that did not meet the coverage criteria as outlined in Medicare National Coverage Determinations Manual, the NCD Manual, Publication 100-03, Chapter 1, Part 2, Section 160.7. Further, the OIG found a pain management practice had received millions of dollars in Medicare payments over several years for those implanting SCSs. The provider performed and billed for permanent SCSs without the prerequisite trial modalities or trial demonstration using a temporary stimulator as specified in the NCD. Now, in response to the management implication report, the MIR report, CMS directed the prior SMRC, 
who was then Strategic Health Solutions, to perform medical re record reviews of SCS claims. Now, based on those findings, additional medical reviews were recommended. Of course, the reasons for the review is critical. They narrow it down in scope for us. The scope involves Noridian performing data analyses as well as conducting medical reviews. They will complete their data analysis and review activities in accordance with applicable statutory, regulatory, and sub-regulatory guidance. They are honing in on TOB and specialty codes for hospital outpatient at 13X, as well as for the critical access hospitals at 85X, as well as ambulatory surgical centers for 49. They're also pinpointing our CPT codes for CPT code 63650, which is defined as percutaneous implantation of neurostimulator electrode array epidural, as well as CPT code 63655, which is defined as a laminectomy for implantation of neurostimulator electrodes plate and or paddle epidural. And they're also looking at CPT code 63685, which is defined as insertion or replacement of spinal neurostimulator pulse generator or receiver direct or inductive coupling. Now remember, please, if you receive this letter of additional documentation request, the ADR letter, from the SMRC, you'll have to include these items as indicated on your ADRs. Now I'm gonna list out 11 items. Now the first they want included is the pre-procedure history and physical examination reports. The second is the physician order for the procedure or the device. The third is the documentation of the screening the evaluation and diagnosis by a multidisciplinary team prior to implantation. Such screening must include psychological as well as physical evaluations. The fourth item is the documentation of the previously tried and failed treatments, such as medications or physical therapy or a previous surgery or psychological therapy or documentation that supports that these modalities were considered unsuitable or contraindicated. Now the fifth is for documentation of an effective spinal cord stimulator trial prior to permanent implantation. <clears throat> the sixth is for operative procedure reports, including all physician, anesthesia, perioperative and nursing notes, and medication administration records to support services billed on the requested date of service. The seventh is for the advanced beneficiary notice of non-coverage or those ABNs if applicable. The eighth is for legible handwritten physician and or clinician signatures. They specify they'll want signature logs as well as signature attestation statements should be submitted when the physician and or the clinician signatures are not legible. The ninth is for valid electronic physician and or clinician signatures. So for example, if an electronic health record is used, the electronic order signature process form should be submitted 
to verify the provider's electronic ordering system is secure. The tenth is to list any and all abbreviations or acronyms that are used throughout the medical documentation. And finally, the eleventh is for any and all other documentation to support the medical necessity of the item or services billed. Now remember, these post-payment audits are a sign, a signal that something may be amiss in your documentation, your coding, and billing. But a better, smarter approach is one that is proactive and starts by painting a clear, rich, and vibrant medical picture the first time so your certified medical coder can then abstract codes with accuracy. And finally, in this week's inspiring quote, in Spark, is from our Nobel Prize winning American author, William Faulkner. Always dream and shoot higher than you know you can do. Don't bother just to be better than your contemporaries or predecessors. Try to be better than yourself. I completely agree. I think this profound statement on encouraging greatness is amazing. We all need this level of self-encouragement, this level of self-belief. There is absolutely no need to compare ourselves to those around us. There is, however, a need to hone in on our goals and dreams and keep setting those goals and dreams higher and higher. I know we can achieve every single one of them. We all have a chance at achieving greatness. I am happy William Faulkner's spark still burns brightly in all of us today. So that wraps up today's episode. I know the first day of spring is just a few days away and we've already passed our one-year COVID anniversary together. I know I'm looking forward to getting my vaccine in just a few months. But remember to keep masking up, washing up, and staying physically distant. We're not in the clear yet. Please go out and make this a great day, an incredible week for yourselves. Aim a little higher, do a little more, and give back in any way you can in 2021. There's so much each one of us can do. As always, I appreciate you diving into today with me. And if you'd like to inquire about my consultant services, you can always reach me through my email address at nexonpruitt.com. I'll leave links to everything in the show notes below. Please continue staying safe and healthy, practice safety for one and all during our collective life in the time of coronavirus. Thank you for listening in on today's very special episode, and I hope every week with me brings you closer to helping your providers paint a masterpiece. See you next Wednesday.